0: So January 2007, that was my first time being super involved in, in a political race. I was somewhat interested when I was on Wall Street. I used to always get teased. I was like the only Democrat uh, on the trading floor. They you know, I'd come back from lunch and they, you know, cut out pictures of Bill Clinton and you know put jail bars over him. You know, whatever was funny at that time. Um, so that that was my first time getting super involved, and it was also an awakening for me in. in discovering sexism, by the way, Hillary was treated and, and that was heartbreaking for me and how I then founded, co-founded an organization to do something about that.
1: Whether we're talking about the fear of failure or anything else holding you back, confidence is the key to unleashing your power. Welcome to Confident with me, Sherry West, and my fearless daughter, Olivia. Join our conversations with fierce female leaders and explore how you can become the confident, inclusive leader that our world needs.
2: Welcome to episode nine, Stand Up, Be Heard.
1: Welcome, welcome, everyone. Oh yeah, 2021. I've never cheered
2: so loudly to welcome a new year. Of course, 2020 started out bright and shiny too. We all thought it was the year we would get everything we wanted. Instead, we learned to appreciate everything that we have. Including me, Olivia? Oh, of course.
1: (laughs) Yep, peace out 2020 and onward 2021 when we need to include self-care in our goals. It's so important to check in with ourselves and make sure that we are okay. And for us activists to remember that joy is a form of resistance.
2: And I have to say, although, yes, I gave you a hard time. Yep, you rolled your (laughs) eyes. (laughs) I found our New Year's Day goal setting session very helpful. And it helped me prioritize ambitious goals beyond just graduating high school and starting college. And
1: speaking of goals, Olivia, Mm -hmm. this week, the history making 117th Congress was sworn in with more women and more women of color and Native women than ever before.
2: And honestly, our guest today played a role in getting some of these women elected. So let's get started.
1: Amy Siskind is a national spokesperson, writer and expert on helping women and girls advance and succeed. A former Wall Street executive, she's president and co-founder of The New Agenda, a national organization working on issues including economic independence and advancement, gender representation and bias, and
2: campus sexual assault. She is perhaps best known as the author of The Weekly List, which has been turned into both a book and a podcast, and was recognized as one of the Politico 50. She also serves on Cornell University's highly prestigious President's Council of Cornell Women and Cornell University Council, and was recently honored by the Westchester County legislators for her LGBTQ
0: advocacy. Welcome to Confident, Amy. Thank you for having me. Thank you both. Nice seeing you in the snowstorm. Yes.
1: (laughs) Well, Amy, we are big admirers of your work and we follow you on Twitter and social. And so we feel like we know you. But is there anything else not covered on your bio that we should know about you?
0: Well, one thing I always talk about when I do my events, especially for the age group that you're focused on, is when I went to college and even as I was graduating, I really had no idea what I wanted to do for a job. And so I think people assume, especially with the generation now going into high school and college that you have to have it all together by the time you apply to college and you have to know, you know 10 years from now and 20 years from now what you wanna be. But the truth is, you know, life happens. And if you find something that you're interested in and uh, in whatever field of study that turns out to be once you're in college and ask around friends that are a little bit older than you, that can be mentors for you for advice That might be the way you find your path. And you might be like me. I turned 55 yesterday and I'm I'm already on my third different thing after graduating from college. So it's not what you ever you pick is your final verdict. Your life will probably have a lot of chapters to it.
1: I would think Olivia as a high school yeah. senior, that's, that's a relief yeah. to hear that, that you don't have yeah. to have it all figured out at 17. Yeah,
0: definitely not. Like as I was graduating my second semester and I was interviewing for jobs, I I had no idea what I wanted to do. I just happened to, I was in a sorority. One of my sorority sisters said, you should interview for this bank. They have a training program. It will be like continuing college. And I did. And I ended up going into a bank training program and ended up going to wall street for 20 years, but That was just on advice that fit me at the time. So absolutely, no pressure. I know for all, I know it's different now. I interview college kids too uh, for uh, Cornell and everybody feels like they have to know 10 years from now what they're doing. And the truth is you don't, that's what learning is about.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's nice. And speaking of those 20 years on Wall Street, can you talk about the, that environment for women and how you mentored women with your mantra
0: learn, earn, return? Yeah, so I'm a big believer in paying it forward. And uh, that has been something throughout my life, and starting with Wall Street and what I do now, um, other than the list and running the National Women's Group, that uh, you benefit from helping others and others benefit from helping you. And it's really served me well, especially being a woman, I think in any career field where you lift up others and then you're, they're your allies in the fight. And uh, I loved what I did on Wall Street. It just was very well suited to me. My daughter who's working from home two rooms away now works on Wall Street. She graduated from college a year and a half ago and is doing something similar to what I did. So. Um, I happen to love what I did, but I always made a habit of finding other women to connect with. And not every story is a good one. I had one boss in my very first job that I didn't get along with that actually tried to get me fired. But other than that, in my 20 years, um, that was something that was very important to me. And when I was uh, about 10 years into my career, I co-founded with a group of peers, something called Damsels in Distressed because we were in the distressed debt business. And it started off just as a fun dinner. The five of us, it didn't even have a name. We were just going out and complaining to each other about stuff at work and staying out late drinking and having fun. And then the next time everyone heard about it and we had 20 people. And so the next month after that, we said, well, why don't we all pick one young woman that we work with and bring her along? So the next time it was 50 to hundred people and we'd go to work the next day and all the guys would be like, were you talking about us? What were you talking about? Uh, but it became this, it, a great thing that i we met a lot of women, young women who some of us hired later um, just informally in those kind of settings. And those connections are super important. And I, I always say that I count among my greatest accomplishments on Wall Street that some of the young women I mentored went on to very senior roles, one went on to run research at Morgan Stanley, one of my mentees there. Um, and so giving, you get back a lot. And um, that's a really important message throughout your career to look for a mentor to help you and to be a mentor when you can. I,
1: awesome. I couldn't agree more. And Live Girl was founded on the premise of paying it forward to the next generation of fierce, diverse female leaders. And, and I agree, like when you get that seat at the table, make sure you pull up a chair for another woman. And yes. I think it's incredible, um, all the mentoring that, that you did while on Wall Street. And then after Wall Street, you you talked about three big chapters after Wall Street, you made another big uh, you made a big career transition into politics, which was a big risk for you at the time. Um, Volunteering for at the time, then Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton's reelection campaign. Um, Can you talk about just like taking that risk and the bravery that it takes and, you you know, how, how to encourage other women to take those types of risks?
0: You know, at at the time it didn't feel particularly brave. I had been doing it for 20 years. I'd been on Wall Street and I just got to a point where it was like doing the same thing and wasn't rewarding. And Wall Street is hard to leave because of the money and the power and I was in a prestigious position, but um, I just knew it was time. I had been cutting back gradually to working three days a week. I had two young children and I had a daughter who was in fourth grade and a son that was in first grade. And I got to the point where I financially could, and I just went on vacation in August. And there had been all sorts of fighting in the office, and I, you know, I went away for two weeks, and I said, you know what, I'm done. And you know, it's a little more complicated than that, but that's the short story. And I didn't know what was next. I uh, so that was August, and I'm Jewish, so I went to Temple for the Jewish holidays in September. And one of my friends said, you should go to this luncheon at Eleanor Roosevelt Legacy Committee, which is a group um, started by uh, Judith Hope that helps get uh, pro-choice women elected. It's in New York state. And so it's really important that you listen to what's around you and go to things and make these connections. So I went to this lunch and Hillary was a speaker and I I had seen Hillary before I retired from Wall Street. I had taken my daughter to see her speak and, bring her report that she had written in third grade about her. Um, So I I went to this um, luncheon and Judith who ran this huge organization came up to me. She said, you, you should run for politics. And I didn't want to, but I then had that connection. And then a few months later, Hillary had won the Senate and was announcing to run for president. And Judith reached out to me um, about being an ambassador for Hillary when she ran for president, this is 2007. 2007, not 2017, 2007. So January, 2007, um, and I got involved. That was my first time being super involved in in a political race. I was somewhat interested when I was on Wall Street. I used to always get teased. I was like the only Democrat uh, on the trading floor. They, I'd come back from lunch and they, you know cut out pictures of Bill Clinton and, you know put jail bars over him, you know whatever was funny at that time. but I, so that, that was my first time getting super involved and it was also an awakening for me in, in discovering sexism, by the way, Hillary was treated and, and that was heartbreaking for me and how I then founded, co-founded an organization to do something about that.
1: Yeah, that's a good transition. Yeah,
2: yeah. So, in 2008, you founded the new agenda to dismantle systemic gender inequality. So, could you talk about the structural biases against women that prompted you to launch this?
0: Yeah, so ironically, and I guess these things kind of go through phases. When I was on Wall Street, I really didn't find that gender was something that stopped me. I, you know, I think once social media came and there was In the 1990s, a whole reprogramming about how women should view themselves, things started to shift. But when I graduated in in 1987, through that next decade, um, I just sort of sprinted up the the ranks and I didn't really encounter sexism that much. I mean, intermittently, yes, but nothing like what Hillary endured. And um, going back to 2008, it was an awakening for our country as a whole. Just watching. And there were, it was very evident that there were no women's groups um, that really spoke out for her. And the Democratic Party allowed it to happen, which was equally, in equal measure, heartbreaking. So a group of us from around the country sat in my living room shortly after she dropped out, and we decided to do something different, which was to be nonpartisan. We were going to be a voice for all women. And the first I would say like three to four years of our organization founded in 2008, were really about speaking out against sexism because there were so few voices. And then uh, we were one of the inputs for picking a woman VP. McCain, who was running against Obama, picked a woman VP. And all the stuff that Hillary had just endured, we just went through the same loop again, this time with Sarah Palin. And so we were a young group, we were getting a lot of attention for bringing up the notion of sexism. Um, And so those first few years were really speaking out against sexism, against all women in power, women of both political parties, women in different career fields, and gradually, happy to say, things started to get better. The other thing that we did as an organization, we launched something called Cabinet Watch when Obama won to make sure that he was picking enough women for his cabinet, which Obama got off to a very slow start in doing that. And we were one of the agitators I was on CNN and Fox and you know, back then MSNBC wasn't as doing as much about that kind of topic, but really advocating and speaking to the Washington Post about it, we need more women in the cabinet. And so for me, I, I, I cry tears of joy as Biden has picked his cabinet, including Deborah Highland now, uh, which is almost half women. That's something about our organization representation we worked for for years. And so to see, it's sort of full circle for me to see all these women be picked and what Biden has done, not only women, but Deb Haaland, the first Native American woman to be Interior Secretary, um, the first woman Treasury Secretary, so many women of color in, as first in these positions. So it's just, to me, that feels like our work has gone full circle. And that's something our organization, in addition to mentoring, um, spends a lot of time on the importance of getting women into senior roles.
1: And and we agree, Olivia and I have been celebrating all the brilliant women um, selected for the next administration. But on the other hand, you know, we are still seeing this enduring sexism and the double bind of Vice President elect Kamala Harris being overly ambitious and Dr. Jill Biden being criticized in the Washington Post op ed for using the doctor title. Um, So, you know, how would you rate our our progress? and, And where do we go from here?
0: So our organization, we we felt like Trump took us so far back, yeah. you know, we had made gradual progress from Bill Clinton, even to George W. Bush to Obama in the number of women and representation, and then we just went we we went back to the ground. We went back to the nineteen fifties kind of level. Right. Um, so. I, I think, you know, sometimes there's there's a saying, you take two steps back and take three steps forward. I think that's what we've done with Trump in his own horrible way, as bad as those four years were. I think it's been an awakening uh, and it will also be a pivot point as we come out of this pandemic, if we do this right, to really get fully invested in some of these issues in a very granular way. And I can't overstate the importance that when people turn on their TV and they see rooms full of decision makers in our government, they're gonna see half women and a lot of those Mm -hmm. women are women of color. And that statement alone is going to change the way things are perceived. Um, The way Jill Biden was attacked, if that happened in 2008, there would have been no, there was no Twitter. There would have been nobody sticking up for her. Now there was like a rush of us to her aid. So things have shifted dramatically. We have a long, long way to go uh, and that's why we had this great field of candidates and we ended up with a white man, 78 year old white man as our candidate, which shows you we're like one of the last countries, developed countries to have a woman head of state. So we have a long ways to go, but we just took it like a huge mountain step for this cabinet and having a woman of color as our vice president. It's, I can't overstate that. It, it just is going to change things in this coming year it's going to cause a lot of pushback as well. But it's, this is when we really have to assert ourselves and have the tough conversations. Yes. And Mm -hmm. we agree.
1: Representation matters. And I still have chills because we had so many parents send us photos of their Mm -hmm. young girls, black and brown girls, watching the TV with uh, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris accepting the the nomination. And it's, I still have chills from that. And, and I agree. You can't, you can't, overstate the importance of that representation. Yes. Um, you've helped really push this progress. I think in 2016, you launched the weekly list. I'm a big fan, um, determined to hold those in power accountable. Can you talk about your role? You've been described as an, an activist of American democracy. Can you talk about that and your advice for young women to stand up and be heard as you've done through the weekly list?
0: Yeah, so again, this was something similar to my foray into politics that I didn't, my third foray that I didn't have any plan to do it. I had planned, you know, I had my own set of um, things that were gonna happen when Hillary won. (laughs) I had my life planned. My oldest was off in college. My second was about to go off to college. And so I had all these things I was going to do. And then like everyone else, I woke up in the morning um, in November, 2016 and I was running the new agenda. And a lot of our young women leadership council members were writing me and saying, what do we do, what do we do? And I had plans that weekend to go to a spa with friends to celebrate Hillary winning, and we didn't go as a group, but I still went to think about what I wanted to do next. And I'm Jewish American, and so I grew up with an education in the Holocaust, and I was really concerned about some of the things I saw with Trump uh, that really struck me as very authoritarian. And I read up about authoritarianism and the importance of writing things down and my North Star is, is Eleanor Roosevelt. My, my parents are older, were older, uh, their past, but they grew up in a generation when the Roosevelt's were in office. And Eleanor's home is up in Valkill, New York. Um, and I went to her home that Saturday and just took in the importance of writing things down and the importance of our democracy being we the people. And that night I came home and started keeping a list. And I, I think my important message to all your listeners is I didn't have a plan. I didn't think, oh, in a year, just similar to politics and similar to Wall Street, I didn't have a plan of what I was gonna do in five years. If you do, that's great. I didn't at that time. I just was following what you know, the reading told me to do, which was to write things down. They, the people who follow authoritarian regimes said, things will be changing quickly and subtly and unless you have a track of it, you lose track. And so the first week was nine items and just tripped down memory lane. He was attacking the cast of Hamilton and the cast of SNL and the New York Times. And then by the second week, it was 18 items. And um, by the third week, 26 items. And people were saying, "Oh, I, I didn't recognize a lot of those. So I started to add hyperlinks and it got a more sophisticated. And i just kept going and a lot of times my kids said to me mom let someone else do it you know it's, it's taking so much time and i just i think the lesson for me is if you decide you're going to do something you stick with it because a lot of people started off keeping a list but i always joke i'm the only asshole that kept going <laughs> everybody else stopped and said it's too much and the first year i remember when i when my book came out of the first year it was about 120 items a week and it was taking me 20 hours a week. And I was like, Oh my God, this is too much. As we closed out year four, it was taking me 50 to 60 hours a week and there's 300 items. So it was staying up till 11 or 12 every night, but it was, you know, duty to country that i realized the importance of everything that I had read and how important it was because we were being lied to and gaslit to stick with this. And I did. And, um, got to the other side of it. You know, it's, it's just, if you pick up something, do whatever it is you're doing, be it Wall Street, being running a women's organization, be it keeping a list, the best you can. And work really hard at it, give it your shot and do your best. And then when you get bored of it and you wanna try something new, then try something new. But whatever you're doing, do, do it at a hundred percent until you're ready to start the next challenge.
2: That's awesome advice, and that, that's crazy, just the amount of time you put into that. And the list is being archived at the Library of Congress, so congratulations. Um, what are your thoughts on
0: becoming a permanent record in US history? And so it, it's at the Library of Congress, but it's actually gonna be permanently archived um, at a major university. I'm just finalizing the terms with them. So what happened was I, I was initially, one of the things I was documenting is information was disappearing. And I was worried that this list would disappear. And the Washington Post in June of 2017 wrote an article about the project and me, and somebody nominated it to be in in, in the Library of Congress. And I thought, great, <laughs> um, now at least it will be backed up. But, and so if we get hacked, it won't get it won't disappear. And then people were rightfully concerned because later in the list you'll see entries about things disappearing from the Library of Congress, like it has to be somewhere else. And that was actually the impetus for me putting the first year into a book that it would be in print form and so it would survive. But early on, I was really concerned about it disappearing. Anyways, long story short, it still is in the Library of Congress, but it's gonna be in a much more functional format. Um, at a university that I'm working with to just finalized the details. It's a huge project because it's, it's going to be maintained as it is now. And 100 years from now, even when, for example, CNN or Politico doesn't exist, you'll be able to click on the link and still see the backup information, even though it's not taking you to the mm-hmm. same destination. So it's, it's complicated. There's, a, I think, 35,000 items wow. um, in the list so it will be preserved forever and it's the first draft of history and i just want it to be a resource for future historians and current historians to be able to use to to write history of this era
1: amy i mean that legacy yeah. is incredible yeah. and i hope it i hope it's enough to convince your family that it was worth all that time <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> they, I, they get it now. I, I, when I was winding down the project, the Washington Post has been wonderful to work with. They, they wrote about my book too. And they did a full page um, in their Sunday edition right before the election of just items from the list, kind of like, you know, I hate to use bad, sad examples, but like what the New York Times did with when we reached the 100,000 deaths and what the Washington Post did with shooting victims. They just made it a whole page and said, "This is one percent of the list. We picked items from each week," and and so I, you know, that visual for people when it hit that Sunday was so shocking to people. And, I, and Nicole Wallace held it up on MSNBC and said, "This is just one percent of the not normal." We have, you know, so I, I I recognize the importance of it. I also recognize the importance now of coming back down and getting my health back and getting my life back. And I've been sitting at my computer every Friday and Saturday for the last four years to finish the list. And so I'm grateful to gradually going through like this detox of getting my personal life back again.
1: Right. Like having some hot cocoa and going (laughs) sledding on a snow day. (laughs) Yes.
0: (laughs) <laughs> I am still going until uh, January 20th uh, in, in a section called after, fortunately, but it's compared to what it was. It's just so much less. Um, but yes, of course, we knew he wasn't going to to leave in a normal way. Right, of you course know, not. Do anything right. normally. Right,
1: right. So Amy, I follow you on Twitter and I thought it was really cool recently when the Time Person of the Year was posted and one of your followers wrote that you deserve the honor of Heroin of the Year for your role in holding elected officials accountable. How do you see your impact of your activism?
0: Uh, You know, I'm a very down to earth, humble person. So all of this, like when I started, I had um, I think like 500 or a thousand followers on Twitter. So like, I just crossed half a million. It's just, um, again, none of this was like anything I envisioned. And I do have, I'm trying to use the voice that I have in the best way I can, like to raise money for Georgia, I raised $300,000 for Georgia for their candidates are doing events and motivating people to vote. So um, I am honored to have this voice, but it hasn't changed who I am. I like to hang out with my dogs and my kids. And when, it, when the pandemic's over, I'm gonna have all my friends over and have a lot of parties and drink a lot of champagne to celebrate uh, the election when we, and when we can be back together again and hug everyone. Um, so one thing that's been important to me throughout my career is to stay very grounded. When I was on Wall Street and people get you know, involved in, um, bad things because there's a lot of power and money to just stay grounded and true to who you are and don't get caught up in all of this stuff. I'm still that same person. I, I mean, I my value system is the same, taking my dogs for a walk, going to the trail, my friendships. Uh, those are the things that matter to me. And that's been central for me throughout. So um, I, I mean, I'm honored that I was able to be here at this moment in time and like serve the country. And that's what I sort of view it as. And uh, right now, I'm just sort of focused on decompressing and coming back down to earth and, and, and just kind of seeing where all this goes. Um, but yeah, just whatever you do, stay grounded. Don't get caught up in it. People come first. Your family comes first. Your friends come first. That's my lesson to everybody.
1: Well, you're very humble, but, yeah. but we agree that you, you yeah. should be voted time heroine of the year. So. Thank you. <laughs>
2: And speaking of those over half a million followers on Twitter, you are a recognized thought leader um, on social media. So my question is, social media, love it or hate it?
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Both. I mean, I I can, like last week, one of my um, college friends who lives up in your town we had been planning to go for lunch to celebrate the election and she she found this place we both have dogs the the fat poodle in old greenwich so we were meeting outdoors it was like a warm enough day that we could meet out sit outside for one last lunch um and i happened to like send a stupid tweet beforehand just like i was it was meant to be funny i couldn't find the right graphic so i just sent it i went off i was having lunch with her so i didn't have my phone out i came back and i was like trending because I tweeted something stupid and it was really inarticulate and it was really stupid. I shouldn't have sent it. And I apologize, which is one thing I've learned, like don't fight against it, apologize properly, take ownership of it, do better the next time. Um, But I have been, you know, the pot, that's, everything I do is under such a magnifying glass. And I can send something stupid and not pay attention and be called to the, you know, the woodshed for it. Um, I could tweet something like, for example, last week, yeah, how Trump joked about the suburbs all the time—that if the Democrats win, Cory Booker is going to come in and burn down the suburbs—and da 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 da—and he's going to save the suburbs. And so a lot of us had joked that shortly after the election, like, when do we burn down the suburbs? And so I sent just sent to like a, a tweet about that: When do we burn down the suburbs? Just joke. And everyone on our side got it. They were like, well, first we have to get Cory Booker, and he'd also said there were going to be taco trucks at every corner in the suburbs and all the, his racist stuff. But the people on his side actually believed it. They were like, Amy Siskin is gonna to come to the suburbs and burn us. This is the, the far left you know, looking for a civil war and they were posting my address and all this stuff. So that's the craziness of being public-like. So sometimes I like it, sometimes I hate it. It's not what it's cracked up to be and it's a lot of responsibility. But then the positive side is I can really help to motivate people to go to the polls or the gift that I had from this project, the one gift was I was inoculated to his gaslighting. And so I knew we were going to win the election and I know he was going to leave. And it's sort of like everyone of my friends even was like going oh, through this emotional abuse. I still got a, a text from one of my friends today in California. What's going to happen on January 6th? Are they going to re-over, I was like, no, no, no. All of this is, I've you know, so I, I couldn't calm people down and bring them back to earth. And that's also been a gift of having a big platform and being able to. Um, it, Cheryl Strayed, the author, joked, like, will you come to my house and whisper to me every five minutes, it's going to be okay. I, you know, it's just, I've always been calm about this election and what we were going to do and that he would leave and it would end. So I guess that's a long way of saying there's positives and negatives, but. Don't think that it's all like peaches and roses and lovely. It, right. It's a lot of responsibility and a lot of negatives come with that kind of presence.
1: And the stakes are higher for you, of yeah. course, with over over a half a million followers. But I think it's good advice for all of us to be very thoughtful and purposeful about what we post on social media. So thank yes. you for that. Um, I love earlier you alluded to Eleanor Roosevelt as one of your role models. Um, and I love I read somewhere that when you made the decision before you made the decision to launch the weekly list you asked yourself what would Eleanor do and I'd be curious just to kind of have you describe the role that role models and mentors have played in your life and your life's
0: decision decisions yeah so my mom again if she were alive she'd be over 100 my parents were born in 1915 and 17 so I grew up hearing I grew up in Massachusetts and I grew up hearing about the Kennedys and the Roosevelts as sort of the Democrats and uh, so Eleanor has this enduring role for me, maybe in the way that Hillary Clinton has for women of your organization that are younger. So um, I, when I moved to New York and I discovered her home is up here, I've been so many times, and it's where she also walked her dog. So I bring Shep and Arlene, my famous dogs, who are named after my friends from Wall Street, um, and we've walked the trails where Eleanor walked. But uh, you know, I, when you get to this point and and things are very fearful. I found that one of the most empowering things was these articles on authoritarianism and Eleanor, because it, it helped me understand that this wasn't the first time something like this had happened in the world. And the articles like Marsha Gessen, who wrote an article in November, 2016 about what was about to happen, almost everything she said in that November, 2016 article turned out to be true because these things in authoritarian regimes follow a pattern in history. And Eleanor, who had lived through a period of time, you know, from Hoover to FDR, um, you know, in our country as well, was going through the depression and having lived through a pandemic. A lot of that was very, I didn't know the pandemic was coming, but having been through an, an era of, of great difficulty in the country, uh, when government's function was also called into question and in a much different way. Uh, but just ha- having somebody else's wisdom Um, took a lot of weight off my shoulders. And about a week before the election of this election, a box came and I I wish I had the cover down here with me, it's up in my bedroom. I opened it up and it was this beautiful photo of Eleanor and there's a new biography out about her. And the cover photo was just gorgeous. And the author happened to follow me on Twitter and knew the story about Eleanor. So I guess he had sent me an advanced copy, but it just, it felt like everything had gone full circle. You know, it was just wonderful for me. Um, and I just want to close out with saying, I. so I've read about her now and I've read other books about her, but not at this level of very granular detail. And she was less than perfect. I mean, she was very anti-Semitic. Uh, Franklin was very homophobic. They were racist when they were younger, but we don't know them for that. So people evolve. I think we have to like, I think there's like this cancel culture Stuff like assuming everyone has been perfect for all their lives. I think we have to create a space where we allow people to have faults and to have done things in the past that they can improve on. Because uh, some of this stuff I was I was reading. I was like, oh, my goodness gracious this is bad. I, I when the first Jewish um, Supreme Court Justice. Brandeis was being nominated. Eleanor assumed that they weren't going to push him through so easily because he was Jewish, which wasn't the reason they thought he was too liberal, but really, really anti, very anti-Semitic. But then later in life, not that way. So people grow. We have to give each other space to grow and realize in 20 years, we're all going to, our country's going to look a lot different and we're all going to look a lot different. That's progress. So that was my lesson from that.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of our leaders have some sort of faults in some way. Um, And that's a really important point about the cancel culture. So with a new administration and hope on the horizon,
0: what's next for you? And the answer is, I am not planning on anything. (laughs) I mean, between us and only fear, I I got approached about potentially having a documentary being done on me in the, and if that works out great, I would like to tell my story at some point, either in a documentary or in, eventually write a memoir. But um, I, I want to do less, like I'm saying no to a lot of things. And I just had my cards read. I, for the first time in my life, two years ago did this, like a woman who had followed me on Twitter. She's like, I will do it for you for free. She's this famous astrologer. And I just had it read again. And, and the long story short is she recommended what I've been kind of thinking. She's like, you're gonna have a lot of things and you might be called, but I, it, if the Biden administration calls me for country, I would do something, but I do not want to do anything. But I, I don't have grand ambitions of what's next other than I've done enough and I would like to have some space in my life when the pandemic's over to travel for my love life, for my personal life, all the things that I had hoped after Hillary won to pick up on some of those things. So um, again, if Judy calls and I need, can help in some way, I would do that, but I, I don't have any grand ambitions at this point. All right. Well, we will be following
1: you because yeah. we've seen the impact and the success you've had without planning. So, <laughs> yeah. so we know there's something magnificent in the future, but thank you. We're going to end their interview with three fun questions, just so our listeners can get to know you a little bit better. We call them our three wise women questions. And the first one is, can you share a favorite Netflix or obsession that's gotten you through the pandemic and quarantine?
0: Oh uh, yeah. It's funny. My, my friend Marnie from, who's like on my floor in freshman year in college called me yesterday for my birthday. And she said, because I, I put a post about like what I had watched and I watched Emily in Paris, which is so not me, and like love, love, loved it. She's like, I can't believe you loved it. And I said, just for this period of time, I have found that I'm really like there's this other goofy show on um, Apple TV, Ted Bass or something. I, I really like silly things. And my son is big on history and he's wanted to watch shows that were popular over the last four years that maybe had elements of authoritarianism. And I I just not like I needed to escape right mm-hmm. so um those are the kind of things that I've enjoyed uh more light things I mean I, I got through crown and whatnot and I enjoyed it um what was the other one uh no that the queen's was gambit. the queen's gambit I love the queen's gambit <laughs> there's another show about a heavyset woman but it's on hulu that I love too that was just delicious uh can't think of it as a single word, but anyway, I, I've tended towards light and fun. makes perfect sense. And yeah. und- Well, I liked undoing too, but who didn't like that? But.
1: <laughs> Although we were convinced as we were watching it that it wasn't going to be Hugh Grant because that would have been okay, so wow. obvious. Spoiler oh, sorry, alert. sorry, spoiler alert, but the- yeah. <laughs> then we were like so mad for like, oh, so it was predictable after all.
2: Anyways, mm-hmm. next question then. <laughs> yeah, the next question is who is your favorite author?
0: Huh. That is a good question. You know, first of all, I haven't like this reading Eleanor's book. Um, I haven't been able to read for really the last four years, so that's like a question that's not fresh in my mind. And I, I mean, I loved um, Jennifer Weiner's books, and now like I see her on Twitter, which is super cool. Um, Emily Griffith. Um, I, I used to tend to read a lot like summer fun books and I haven't been able to read anything other than the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post basically for the last three years. Like the first year of the list, I had a little bit of time. The last three years, I've really had almost no time. So I, one of the things I'm going to look forward to after January 20th is getting my mind back to good old trash reading yeah um I I used to enjoy reading for pleasure and it's I just haven't had time so I used to like light things and I used to you know I liked the books about because I worked on wall street the wall street era books as well um but yeah
1: Well, we wish you some trash reading after dinner. 20th. You deserve that, you deserve that. And last question is, who do you consider to be the greatest leader of all time, either living or historical?
0: Oh, good question. And that's one thing you discover as you get older that these people have faults. Like, I, I, you know, Eleanor, I consider to have been sort of the shadow president during the depression. And the more I read about that time, you realize how much of FDR's presidency it was really Eleanor. They say that she was his conscience and the one who went out on the field because he couldn't do it. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I would probably say Eleanor. I think she is probably the president that got us through the Great Depression. Um, but the other thing I've learned, because if you would ask me who the greatest Democrat was of the living time, I as president, I would have sent Bill Clinton. And then we went through the whole Me Too era and, and went found the foibles of Bill Clinton. Like being alive during his era was a good time to live in this country. Uh, so you, one thing that you learn with age is that none of these people are perfect and we have to give our leaders the space Um, and the perspective. I think Jimmy Carter now is much more appreciated and I thought he was a terrible president. So all these things in retrospect, people are always reinventing themselves, but yeah, probably Eleanor.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, yeah. Amy, for your conversation today. And thank you for all that you're doing to champion girls and women and the impact that you're having in our world. We're, we're very grateful. And just like I said, we are going to continue to follow you and, and, and know that you're going to continue to do great things in the future.
0: Thank you for having me. And good luck to everyone listening. Thank you, Amy. You thank you. Okay, bye-bye.